Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And the Kingdom of God is at hand, and so different things may go on in the Kingdom of God right here, right now. It's it's not based on geographical boundaries. It's about boundaries of the heart. That's where the Kingdom of God is found, is within you. If it is found within you, we should see... Certain activities in your life. That's how you know who is truly seeking the kingdom of God in his righteousness. That, that seeking process and that righteousness is all a part of pure religion or pure religion is at least a part of that seeking of the kingdom of God. And a number of things have come out in the news uh, this week that uh, might be of interest to people seeking the kingdom of God. It certainly seems to be of interest to the people of the world who are seeking the kingdoms of the world for their salvation, their salvation in this life and the next, whatever the next life is composed of. We don't really know. There's a lot of conjecture about, you know, heaven and hell and what's, going on in the world today and uh, what will be going on in the world after we die. We don't know about after we die. We don't know for sure. Jesus says almost nothing about it. But he does talk a lot about life in the present tense. The kingdom, Searching for the kingdom of God in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds is a present event. It's a, it's a in-the-moment event. It's in the now. And so that's why whenever they talk about the kingdom of God, they're talking about it in the now. Now, they also talk about the future. And we've talked about different prophecies where they talked about things that were coming. And, of course, it Jesus even makes reference to the fact that some of the apostles would still be alive when these future events took place. So were some of the prophecies of seeing him coming in the clouds and... In, in glory, is that something that we're supposed to see? Or is it something people have already seen? You know, I, I, I've read the Bible since I was a little boy. I studied the Bible when I was attending St. Joseph's College back in the early 60s. And, uh, I listened to theologians tell me what the Bible was saying. And when I would read the text and hear what they were saying, I would say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like what they're saying. I don't know why they... Everybody else seemed to go along with the the people who were teaching us. But I would constantly be raising my hand and saying, but if... I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought, I'm reading this, and it seems to be saying this, but you're telling me it means this. And so I must not be seen clearly. So, you know, I was struggling with this constantly that there was something wrong with me that I could not see what they were saying was what the authors of the Bible were saying. And then it was many, many years later where I suddenly realized they didn't know what they were talking about. 
And the fact is, is it should be kind of obvious since there are so many seminaries out there teaching different uh, ideologies and philosophies and theologies and eschatologies, all looking at the same Bible. And of course, one of the things that we point out if you go back to the New Testament, or the Old Testament, or at the beginning of the New Testament, which they only had the Old Testament to go by at the beginning of the New Testament, because nobody had written the New Testament yet. So historically, Jesus is not ever, 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 ever quoting the New Testament, (laughs) because it had not been written yet. So everything he was saying, everything he was quoting, was from the Old Testament. And yet we see that Jesus and Moses seem to be in agreement. But yet, when we look at what we believe Moses was telling people, and what we believe Jesus was telling people, they don't seem to look the same. And it is my contention they are exactly the same. That Jesus was not teaching anything different, not really anything different than Moses. He points out, you know, like divorce. Uh, they had a certain amount of divorce in the Old Testament. Of course, we have even more divorce in our modern times amongst people who say they are Christians. And we have lots and lots of divorce. And uh, so what is the truth about divorce? Well, what's the truth about evil? What's the truth about righteousness? And so what Moses was trying to do, Jesus says, Moses gave you divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Not because it's right, but because your hearts are hard. So why, why is, what does your hard hearts have to do with divorce? Well, lack of forgiveness. You're not willing to forgive something or you know, I mean, there, obviously there are causes for divorce. I mean, if a husband or a wife are trying to kill each other, uh, that is the result of lack of forgiveness on the part of somebody. I mean, the the uh, husband who uh, batters his wife or the boyfriend who batters his girlfriend or whatever, he's doing this because there is something in him that he's not willing to face. And so, therefore, he's beating up on a woman. And why is he doing that? Why does he have these anger issues? Maybe he's just beating up with with uh, snide comments and putting her down and and psychologically abusing her. Maybe he, it's actually progressed to physically abusing her. But why is he doing that? And then why do so many women go back to their abusers? We've seen this, you know, I've seen it because I've dealt with People having problems in marriage for for years and years and years and years. Why does this battered woman, I mean black and blue battered woman, keep going back, keep forgiving? You go ask policemen who deal with domestic violence. And they they keep going back. And you say, look, why are they doing that? He's just going to beat them again. He hasn't changed. Year after year, this goes on. And they keep going back. Why do they do that? Well, it's a compulsion. You know, the people are saying, she must be crazy. Well, it's a delusion and a compulsion moving her in her life. Why does the dog return to his vomit and the pig to the mire? Uh, of course, that's, that's quotes from the Bible. Why are they saying that? Because, you know, why does the criminal return to the scene of the crime? 
You know, why does Jeffrey Dahmer go back to do what he he does? Because of the fact that, you know, he felt guilty after he did it. He felt terrible. But then he goes back and does it again. So what's not happening to prevent that rep? Why does the drug addict go back? You know, yes, we can see in the physical addictions, there is these patterns that draw you back to that addiction. And it's actually patterns in your physical body, actually chemistry in your body that's drawing you back. Well, that's not always the case. A lot of times with some addictions, it's a mental addiction. It's not really so much chemistry, although there is a certain amount of chemistry involved. You know, like some people can't produce endorphins. They're one thing that can damage a, a, a person so they cannot readily produce endorphins is alcoholism at a very young age or drugs at a very young age. But of course nowadays a lot of times doctors are putting children on drugs at a very young age and it makes it difficult for them to produce endorphins. Also, you know, like putting a child on Ritalin or uh, Luxol or some of these other psychotropic drugs when they're very young When they're young, a precocious child is learning how to deal with mental issues of that precociousness. They're learning how to cope with that. That's what they're doing as a child while they act out things. If you drug them, they don't get to go through that learning process because they're drugged. It's kind of like... If somebody breaks their leg and you put a cast on their leg because, you know, the bone has to set and heal. Okay, after three weeks or four weeks, depending on the break, the bone is mended back. Now you take the cast off. Maybe they'll use a crutch for a few days afterwards as they're getting to use that leg again. But eventually they have to use that leg without the crutch and without the uh, uh, cast on their leg in order for their leg to become strong again. But people are putting children on Ritalin for years and then progress them up to Prozac and Luxol and these other drugs and then they expect them to suddenly become an adult and deal with these issues. It's not going to happen. Oh Well, it can, but you have to go back to the original problem and start dealing with those issues that you failed to deal with when you were 8 and 10 and 12 and 15. Like people who smoke or chew or, you know, take other, uh, you know, alcohol. They do it because it helps them cope, they say. I've heard that so many times I can't tell you. No, it helps them not cope. Coping would be not taking the drug or the tobacco and dealing with what is wherever that anxiety is coming from. So, if a child is is molested or uh, abused, you know, mentally or emotionally when they're a child, and they can be they can be abused because of circumstances, uh, not because of one parent. Maybe a parent just dies. That's a traumatic event. You can call it abuse. They didn't die in order to abuse, but it's the same. Abuse is trauma. The death of a parent is trauma. The death of both parents is trauma. How do we fix that? 
And actually, we're going to tie that into some of the things that we're going to talk about today. But these are questions that should come up in your mind. Fear is a trauma. And in the news, we've seen several things that came up in the news in the last week or so that is about trauma. One is this uh, uh, coronavirus. And, you know, oh my gosh, coronavirus is coming. You know, what was there, 800 cases or something? And and then, what, 27 people died? I don't remember the exact statistics on that, and they're probably changing on a day-to-day basis. The coronavirus is very common. Yeah, throughout the world, you can find it all over the world, the coronavirus. And, and it has, there are different, at least they've discovered at least five different strains of the coronavirus. Most of them aren't really all that serious. People will get sick and then they get better. Some people get coronavirus, exposed to the coronavirus, and don't even show symptoms. You don't even know they were sick. But they're immune. They they were exposed, their body kicked in, created immunity, and they're walking down the street absolutely immune to coronavirus. They don't even know they're immune to it. You know, if they pick up any one of the five different strains that we know about, you know, we probably don't know. There's probably dozens of strains that we don't know about. I mean, it's, it's not like you can look out on the street and say, oh, there's one of those coronaviruses going by. You know, you can't even see them. So they've discovered at least five, but there's probably all kinds they haven't discovered. And if you're exposed to any one of them, it will trigger things in your body that starts to make you immune. You know, polio virus were pervasive throughout the uh, Mato Grosso's and in, in, uh, in the Brazilian tropics. Uh, polio's all over the place, but nobody hardly gets it because most of the people are immune to it. Occasionally, their immune systems get compromised because of something, and they might get it. And then, of course, strains of viruses can change just because of things like sunlight and and just changes because you got billions of those little viruses around, and they can they can be altered by a variety of things, you know, funguses and chemicals and what have you that are found in nature. But uh, 95% of the people who got polio in the United States before anybody came up with any kind of a vaccine were immune to polio. Or 95% of the people who got polio became immune and they never knew it. They never showed any symptoms. That I mean, this is CDC that tells you this. So during those summers where you had Dozens of people come down with polio. You had hundreds, maybe thousands of people who got polio, got better, had lifetime immunity to polio. At least the strains that were around at that particular time. Lifetime immunity to it. And if any other new strains came along, they would likely become immune to them readily. Because they were already immune to polio type viruses. And this is going on so that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were totally immune to polio and never even knew it. They hadn't received no vaccines whatsoever. That's how you get herd immunity. 
That's the natural way that's created that you would get herd immunity. But most people don't know that. But you can read right on the CDC websites and it explains this. But you have to actually read it. If you just read the news reports that say vaccine cures polio. Well, of course, vaccines don't cure polio. Vaccines infect you with polio in a mild form or in a benign form and your body produces antibody, uh, you know, produces the antigens necessary to, uh, combat polio. It, it awakens your immune system to combat, uh, combat the polio virus and it, your body can do the same things with, even with bacteria, etc. Uh, through other parts of your immune system because you have no number of layers to your immune system. And so that's what most vaccines or most things calling themselves vaccines do is they stimulate your body to fight off the disease. They don't actually fight the disease. They don't actually cure anything. But if you already have thousands upon thousands of people in the country maybe millions of people, because there could be multiples of this, that are totally immune to polio because they've already developed that immunity. And then suddenly you come along with a vaccine and you see polio cases decrease, you can think, because you often think correlation is causation, that the vaccine cured the polio. The vaccine didn't cure the Spanish flu and it went away. It didn't actually go away. It's still around, but nobody gets it anymore. It could come back in some strain or other where people would start to get it again, but people would also start to get immune. So what you really want to know is why are some people readily become immune to these diseases like the coronavirus and other people do not? Is there something in their genetics? Is it something in their lifestyle? Is it something in their diet? Is it something in their habits, that you know, their health habits, that causes them to readily become immune and somebody else not to? That's what you should be studying. There's not a lot of money in that. <laughs> it's a lot more money in selling you on a vaccine. So it's why... Is that difficult to understand? It really should be simple to understand, but people don't understand it because of fear. You're afraid to face the danger. And you are convinced or told or taught that men in white coats will come and save the day and provide you with a vaccine that they can just poke you and then you will be saved. Your salvation is in that needle. And uh, it may be, and it may not be. You know, there was a case that my daughter was just talking to me about where somebody, child, had type 1 diabetes. A young child. And uh, the, she went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, do you just give him this insulin, etc., etc., and and he'll be okay. He says, well, should I watch what he eats? Oh, don't bother with that. Just, you know, monitor his sugar and give him the insulin. And, and and she thought, well, she was doing this and her child was miserable. He was not happy. Uh, he was constantly battling this, this these sugar levels and the right amount of insulin, not enough, too much. And uh, difficult to go out and play and having all kinds of 
emotional difficulties and then she began to study diet and she altered his diet so that he was taking in less sugars and less carbohydrates and having less trouble and less need for insulin. She was still monitoring the blood and giving him insulin when he needed it, but now he's out playing. He's happy. He's not constantly battling this because he doesn't have as much problem because she altered his diet. And the doctor actually berated her that your child will grow up hating you because he's, I think he was put on a keto diet where he cuts out a lot of the carbohydrates and it's probably a modified keto diet, but he didn't hate her. He knew what it was like when he was entirely dependent upon insulin (laughs) and eating anything he wants. I mean, you don't love your parents because they give you candy. <laughs> Didn't you even hear the story of Hansel and Gretel? <laughs> no, that isn't the what the the parent was doing was empowering the child to deal with his ailment, and that the child could help contribute to good health by altering his activities. But people don't want to alter their activities. And that empowerment helps you overcome that fear. Because fear is where most trauma comes from. Fear and anger. And I've often said, fear and anger are the same things. They're just, one is flight and one is fight. But they're the opposite sides of the same emotional coin. Fear and anger. So you see that the battering husband seems so angry and the cowering wife seems so afraid. Yet, it creates an addiction where she returns to that situation. Well, if a child is traumatized in their life as a young child and don't deal with that trauma, they suppress that or hide that behind, you know, I mean, trauma is painful. So I understand that there's a natural tendency to shove it somewhere into your subconscious uh, and drugs can help you do that. Music can help you do that. Acting out anger and, and fear and all these things can help you do that. But eventually you need to face those things and be released from them because they are like the Marley chains that you drag around into your adulthood. So, you know, that's what a lot of psychologists try to do or counselors. You're supposed to sit down and talk to them about your problems. And sometimes that does make it easier when you talk to somebody, especially somebody you don't know well or somebody you trust. You talk to them and your problems kind of can start to come out and where you can see it. You know, a good psychologist will admit that you're healing yourself by talking about these things, bringing them out in the open now that you're an adult and you can deal with those issues. And I've given hundreds of stories over the years about people who did this and had huge changes in their life, both emotionally and physically. But if you're engaged in any kind of compulsive behavior, bizarre behavior where you're doing things that you don't even know why you're doing them, Chances are it has to do with trauma in your past. And so seeking the kingdom is not about fear. It's not about vanity. It's not about anger. It's not about judgment. It's about truth. We'll be right back. (coughs) 
join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there. It's all the same. And we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints. But they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And join us on Facebook. Facebook.com, His Holy Church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. Well, welcome back. So, seeking the kingdom of God is about seeking truth. And in order to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, which is our directive, we have to be willing to seek the truth and love righteousness. Well, the fact is, buried in our in our hearts and our mind is a lot of things that might have been something unrighteous done to you, something unfair, something like I say, traumatic that was done to you. And you need, and you were angry at that or frightened by that. Same thing again, angered or frightened. You know, a small child could easily be frightened by the fact that, you know, his father is his stable, uh, supposed to be, anyway, the, the stable, his giant, you know, his protector. Yeah, I just read a story about, uh, or heard a story about a father who had been in the military and, and he was home and he was taking his son camping and they were attacked by a grizzly bear. And he told his son to run and he put himself between the grizzly bear and, and the, his son to protect his son. And he was mauled. And then before he, but the, eventually the bear ran off. And uh, the man was laying there bleeding before he passed out. He sent a message with his phone. And, of course, eventually they were rescued. But uh, it was a traumatic event to see the strength of his father overcome by this bear. And that's, so that's a frightening event. But as the child grows and he's willing to look at that event, he will also see the the courage of his father to stand between him and uh, and danger and that may be passed on but if he does not look at that event and suppresses that event he could become so traumatized that when he faces danger he will revert back to his childhood when he ran rather than to what he used to become this brave father himself and so seeing those traumas, looking at them later on, you know, with your children when they have traumas is very important. Well, some parents never do this. Maybe the traumas, the father went off and became a drug addict and maybe abused his mom and all kinds of terrible, horrible stories. So, but you, somebody has to come along a lot of times, and this is really the role of every one of us, not just ministers, because we're all supposed to minister one to another, is to be there, be that sounding block, that ear, that compassionate, empathetic ear that is willing to help these people look into their hearts and find that trauma. Revisit it now with the security of friendship and love around them 
and overcome that. And you overcome that with what? Forgiveness and and letting things go. And that's what charity is about. Charity is about letting things go. That's the sacrifices of the altars of Abraham. It was taking something you sweat and toiled to obtain and letting it go. This is the, the, the scapegoat analogy where you let it go. And with that letting go, you also let go of the ill effects of that trauma. And you can't do that unless you forgive. Forgiveness and giving are an essential part of that growth that allows you to bring the kingdom, or allows the kingdom of God and his righteousness to enter into you. But instead, we're looking to a lot of other things to enter into us to save us. Not the Spirit of God to come into us and save us. So another thing that came up is there's a, there's a antibiotic called Leviquin. Uh, I think the technical name is Levoflosequin. Uh, and, uh, it's an antibiotic. And there's been 1200 deaths from that. Only, you know, only 79 from the coronavirus. But 1200 known deaths, admitted deaths, from taking this just simple antibiotic. That seems to be worse than the coronavirus plague that they're going to try to get everybody to take a vaccine for. <laughs> so anyway, if, if you're, somebody offers you, you know, some antibiotics, some antibiotics you might need from time to time, but some of them are more dangerous than others. And unless somebody tells you, uh, you know, you might want to check that. See if that's Leviquin they're offering you. But the reality is, what you often think is your salvation is not your salvation. It's actually death waiting for you. And you have to prepare yourself to recognize what is truly your salvation and what is not truly your salvation. And that's why I brought up the fact that when I was reading the Bible back then and they were saying that this is what it meant and this is what it meant and this is what it meant, I kept asking, that doesn't seem to be what it it means. And I, but I was struggling to try to fit their explanations into my heart and my mind, but something was in me saying, no, that doesn't quite fit. And it was creating quite a dilemma, quite a, quite a trauma in me. And so that many years later, I didn't even want to use the word church. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't overtly angry at the church for that trauma that they were causing, those men of church, those theologians who were teaching me these falsehoods. I didn't think about being angry at them, but deep down, they were the part of the source of my trauma. They were an element of the source of my trauma. And it came out where I didn't even like to use the word church. I still believe in God and still uh, look back at the Bible and search for the truth and all this stuff. But hidden deep down inside me, and I realized I had to forgive them their ignorance, their foolishness, in order to be free of that because it was haunting me. And... Uh, the same as when I first began to go out and do public speaking and people wanted to put you up on a pedestal. It actually made me physically sick. I had to forgive them for trying to do that, of putting me on the pedestal in order to be free of that pedestal. 
It, all the, the quest for the kingdom is within your own heart and mind. Now, going out in the world is a way in which we challenge how much of the kingdom we have really let in and how much trauma we're still dragging around. A lot of people, they believe in the Bible. They believe in Jesus. But they actually don't believe in Jesus and they don't believe in what the authors of the Bible were trying to say. They have created a strong delusion in their minds. And anybody who questions that delusion is the enemy. Because they worship the creation in their minds. And then, of course, if they create an image of God in their mind and they worship that image, they will eventually, likely, try to create an image of God and build some statue or build uh, some cathedral or some institution, and then that's their, that's who they look to, you know. It's, you know, it's this church or this religion that is my salvation. No, the truth, I am the truth, the way and the light, that is your salvation, the truth. And that truth, in that truth, many spirits dwell. <laughs> but also in the lie, many spirits hide. And so you want to open the door to let in the light and see the truth. And I also, I saw this morning on Twitter, there's somebody who was talking about the book, uh, The Life, Life and Fate. And it was written by, uh, Vasily Grossman, who was, a Jewish, uh, citizen of R- Russia and eventually the so- Soviet Union. And, uh, he lived during the time of World War II. And uh, he was kind of a, I think a correspondent, but eventually became this author. And he wrote a book, 900-page book, Life and Fate. And it was suppressed by the Soviet government. They didn't allow him to publish it. And uh, he eventually died in the 60s. He wrote, finished writing it in 1960. But eventually it was published in the United States. But it's 900 pages. And it's about... Uh, following these stories, it's a novel. It's it's following the stories of certain people in the Soviet Union and with certain people in Germany, and uh, and their plight during the the rise of uh, the Nazis and the rise of communism and through the war and how the two systems both were producing this Holocaust of deaths. People always talk, and even the people talking about the book, they're talking about how, because he was Jewish, I mean, he had relatives who were, you know, died in the camps. And so people talk about the Holocaust is the arrest and persecution of Jews. Well, yeah, supposedly their statistics, I think, are like 6 million Jews died during the Holocaust, but 20 million plus died during the Holocaust. So they were the largest single minority. There were also a couple, several million gypsies or Romana, Roma, uh, that, uh, were killed during the same Holocaust. But the majority of the people were neither Jewish nor gypsy. <laughs> they were all killed too. And so what happens to a nation to exterminate through 
imprisonment or execution, because a lot of people just died because they were imprisoned under terrible conditions. They, what causes a nation to be that savage against their own people? Well, the same thing was going on in in the communist governments under Stalin. Stalin, well, even before Stalin, this was going on. But under Stalin, he he would stay up all night making huge long lists of people to be executed in in order to even uh, progress up in the chain of command in Stalin's uh, Russia or Soviet Union. You had to denounce somebody and people. That was one of the things where one of the characters in the book denounced two innocent people in order to maintain the proper prestige and move up in his own career. And he always regretted that. But uh, and he, he also feared that he would be denounced at any time. So there was this combination of fear and selfishness that was locking him into a system that ended up killing Millions upon millions of people, and of course, then you go to communist China, which isn't in the book, I guess, but uh, millions more. I mean, double the number of people that were put to death in the Road of Bones and the gulags. And, and we just talked last week about somebody just completely naive about history. He thought that the gulags were great, that people were paid a living wage, they got to go home on weekends, they got vacation. Like, I don't know where he's getting his facts. <laughs> That's not what was going on in the gulags. Um, but uh, they're willing to believe a lie because they're not really interested in the truth. And that's what happens to a nation. When it's not willing to see the truth on a massive national scale and just look at the basic truth facts, that's a bad sign. How do we get to the point where a nation is not willing to look at the facts that tell us what the truth is. All the facts, even the inconvenient truths. And in order to do that, each individual within the nation has to be willing to look at the truth about themselves. Their sloth, their avarice, their greed, their selfishness. And they have to come face to face with that selfishness. If they don't, they too will go down that road. So one of the people, uh, Douglas Murray, I think it was, uh, was asked the question about what did these two systems of the Nazis and the communists have in common? That they were both, because that's what you're seeing in the book, that they were both creating this, this uh, holocaust for their own people. That they were you know, that they were killing millions upon millions of people. A lot of people argue about the statistical, how many people were killed in the Nazi Holocaust. And was it really six million Jews? Okay. Say it was four million Jews. Does that suddenly go like, oh, oh, well, then that's okay. It was only four million. Okay. Maybe it's, they only killed a million Jews. So then that's okay. So, arguing about the statistics is ridiculous. It's very clear that somebody did something, I'm quoting somebody else in the news, that was bad to people who lived in their country, unjustly and unfairly, to the tune of at least several million people, 
were killed. If you just counted a couple hundred thousand Jews killed, it would still be several million people altogether that was killed. There is no, you know, like, it's, it's, it's better because it was, the statistics were 10%, 20%, half as much. The same evil is going on. Statistics don't matter. It, you, you can't imagine a million people anyway. I mean, these big marches you see of all these people out there in the marches, uh, and it's, it's 10,000 people. It's not a hundred thousand people. It's not a half a million people. Yeah, a million people is a lot of people. And that's the ones they say died. How many other were traumatized and decimated? I know of people who went through the imprisonment and the abuse. And one of the great abuses is when they get you to do evil to your fellow man in order to survive. It's hard to recover from that. And it plants the seeds of their viral evil in society. Because those people who had to do things they are ashamed of in order to survive, even if it wasn't terribly malicious, they just had to, you know, they had to be selfish in order to survive. They will pass that anger and resentment on to their children. And their children will pass it on to their children. And it will go on from generation to generation to generation for seven generations or more. Unless you're willing to see the truth about your own heart. Because that's where it can stop passing down. And how do you see that truth or the lack of truth in your own heart, or the truth about your own heart, is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what is that? What was the one thing, and I just added this to our page on Polybius, this uh, this historical novel, Life and Fate, by uh, Vasily Grossman, tried to reveal in 900 pages the mysterious process that turned two nations of the 20th century into perfect savages. When Polybius had already told us 200 centuries before Christ in a few words, both the Nazis and the communists justified replacing the practice of charity through pure religion with the covetous practices of socialism. Because Primarily, that's, you know, socialism leads to communism, so Karl Marx was promoting socialism, and communism is just socialism on steroids. And then I go on to say, when the masses justify their appetite for benefits through the rule of force, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and all that, they're going to force people to contribute, instead of through the fervent charity they are always degenerating again into perfect savages. And that's why Richard uh, Niehaus, you know, a prominent preacher and theologian who came from Canada and lived in the United States, passed away now, said socialism is the religion people get when they lose their religion. And once you understand that religion... Is not what you think about God. 
Not that image of God that you've created in your mind. That's not religion. That's actually idolatry. When you worship the image of God in your mind. Religion is simply the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And that duty to your fellow man is not to use force to take away what he has produced so that you can be better off. That duty to your fellow man is to help him in a way that strengthens him as an individual. Which might be just to take some time and listen to him and why he has these compulsive problems. You're not going to make him better, a better child by fear. You know, I know a lot of people, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. They don't understand what the rod is. They imagine that the rod means to beat the child if he's bad. The rod wasn't used to beat sheep. (laughs) You don't beat sheep to get them to do what they should be doing. You use the rod to guide them. To to say, don't go this way, go this way. And uh, lead them over to a safer path. That's what the rod is for. It's not to beat them into submission. And that's just basic understanding. But most people, a lot of people won't see it. If you've already been traumatized by the rod or beatings of your own parents, you will think, I need to justify you know, that by returning to the same crime of beating my children into submission. But that's not where, that's not how it works. It works much differently. So, anyway, uh, those are little items that I thought I would share with you in the news. Uh, or last week we were talking about the same processes that went on back in Rome. Of course, Polybius was originally a Greek. He was from Corinth. Uh, before it was destroyed by the Romans, he was uh, taken as a hostage uh, where he was kept in Rome to try to keep Corinth in line. And then they continued to break the <laughs> natural rules and lie and cheat behind the back. At least the politicians running Corinth. And, of course, the people pay the price of letting those corrupt politicians remain in power. See, this is what a lot of people don't realize. This is why I encourage people to read our article. Uh, on Article 2, Section 22 of the Oregon Constitution. If you turn a blind eye to the corruption of your government, the government that you have chosen, you say you live in a democracy or even a republic, and you have leaders who are corrupt, who are going against the rules they're sworn to uphold, and you don't do anything about it, you don't call them out on it, you may pay the price of their lies and corruption. And you should pay it. And that's what happened with Corinth. Is Their leaders were making agreements and breaking them and sneaking behind the back of the Romans. And the Romans eventually came in and they ordered that everybody in Corinth, all the men, be killed. All the men in Corinth be killed. Now, Polybius was already living in Rome, so he was safe. But all the men in Corinth were to be killed and all the women and children sold into slavery. And that wiped out the existence of Corinth. There was nobody really living in Corinth anymore at all. Uh, except, you know, a few people wandering around in the empty buildings that were not tore down completely. Corinth would be revitalized a hundred years later, but, uh, through Julius Caesar. But 
before Julius Caesar did that, he had already gone to Gaul and committed mass genocide in Gaul and became very wealthy in the process. Almost was killed himself, but survived and uh, annihilated over a million people in Gaul, which is a lot. You know, we talk, we just been throwing out numbers like 20 million people, 6 million people killed during uh, the Nazi Holocaust or whatever it was, 27 million people killed in the uh, Holocaust of uh, the Soviets or 60 million people uh, killed in, in China, whatever the numbers are. You can't fathom those numbers. But the difference is, you know, the population at that time to go out with Roman soldiers, and of course they had allies amongst the Gauls, and put to death at the point of a sword a million people is an amazing thing. And then, of course, they enslaved at least a million people as well and sold them into bondage where they eventually went out and mixed with Italians and mixed with Germans because they sold slaves in Germany. They sold slaves everywhere. And uh, so that was that was the Holocaust. And some people in Rome like Cato, wanted to put Caesar in chains right away from the beginning and send him back to the Gauls to let them have their way with him because they considered him a war criminal. But other people cheered him because he had been filling Roman coffers with treasures that he was stealing from the Gaul people. And they accepted that. Now, this was, you know, a hundred years after Polybius. And Polybius evidently saw this problem coming way back then. You know, a hundred years before. So they were already in a process of taking benefits. He says, the masses continue with an appetite for benefits. Does that sound familiar? People want benefits. And the habit of receiving them by way of the rule of force. And even violence. Now, this is a translation, so you might want to look up that word violence, but force and violence. They were using force, you know, like the guy who confronted Elizabeth Warren. He says, I saved my money and I paid for my daughter's uh, college education. She saved her money. She had been working since she was 10 years old to save up money. We paid for our college. Do I get that money back? Because my neighbor, he his daughter got student loans. He had more money than I did. He made more money. But he went on trips, vacations. He spent his money. You know, like the grasshopper in the hand. But now you're going to forgive his debt. Do I get my money back? And then she says no. So they're rewarding bad behavior. And in a sense... Punishing good behavior because they think evil is good and good is evil. They can't see the the evil of what they're doing. But we'll we'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom and talk about that. We talk a lot about the kingdom here and we talk a lot about what most churches are afraid to talk about or don't even know to talk about which is what the first century church was really doing. But just talking about it is not enough. 
We encourage everybody to join us in their local neighborhoods, in their local communities, to find out more about what they can do to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Gather with others who are already starting this road or starting to turn around and do things differently. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there. It's all the same. And we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints. But they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And join us on Facebook. Facebook.com, His Holy Church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. You must become a doer of the word. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So anyway, Polybius, you know, about 160 years before Christ preached and John the Baptist said that we were to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity and uh, not through force, which is the way most Christians take care of the needy of their society today because they're not real Christians. They think they're real Christians because they created an image of the gospel in their mind, the image of Jesus in their mind, and an image of Christ in their mind, that they think Christ said it was okay to covet your neighbor's goods through the agency of men who exercise authority, even though right in the text, Christ said it's not to be that way with you. Now, if all the people claiming to be Christians, all the people claiming to be Jews, all the people claiming to be Muslims, following uh, the the prophets of Abraham and Moses, were to see the fact that they were not to covet their neighbor's goods through the agency of men who use force and even violence. The world would be a different place to to be. But they can't see that because they won't let that be written in their hearts and their minds. So they continue following their false religions. Not that Christianity is a false religion. Not that Judaism is a false religion. But their version of Christianity and Judaism. And all the Semite religions. Because Arabs are Semites too. Anybody who speaks uh, Arabic or Hebrew would be considered a Semite. (laughs) So, So... All those people, on all these different sides of the fences that people are creating, these boundaries and borders that people are creating between each other, were to start to realize that they should live by charity and not by force. The world would change, because they have changed. Their leaders would change, because they have changed. Until men change, governments will not change. And so, Polybius understood this. And he didn't need 900 pages to say it. <laughs> in his histories, they were longer than that, but in that one one short paragraph, he put it down pretty clear. The masses continue with that appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the way of rule of force and violence. The people having grown accustomed, thinking that that's okay, 
to feed at the expense of others and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of violence, which is what you see uh, not only the Democratic, but even the Republican Party saying is okay. That Republican Party is just trying to be a little bit more conservative in how much rule of force and violence they implement. They don't want quite so much. They want less. If you want any, haven't you already let the camel? You know, somebody was just talking about the fact that the Democrats started letting these radical socialists and communists join their party in order to gain more votes uh, back in the, the 60s and 70s. And they were warned back then in the 70s, even in the 80s, not to do this. And Obama, of course, you know, bringing people like Bill Ayers out and everything. These these are radical extremists who want to bring down the system. They desire to do so. Like uh, Piven and, and, and his wife, they, as a couple, they want to bring down the system by overburdening the very social welfare system they're promoting so that the system economic collapses and they can put a socialist communist regime into place. And they have dinner at the White House. I mean, they said that was their plan. But most people can't see this. And they can't see it because they're not dealing with the traumas in their own lives. Their own fears. Their own anxieties. Their own desire to take away from somebody else. To benefit from taking away from somebody else. This spirit of socialism. It can be in a small child who does little kleptomaniac things. You know, where he, 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 he takes something from his brothers or his sisters or his neighbor or pilfers something in the store. He's just following a spirit that has gotten into him. And he cannot resist it. It's an addiction. I knew a guy in the seminary who was a kleptomaniac. He would steal stuff he absolutely did not need. Of course, his father was a mortician and he lived, you know, in the house above the morgue. Where his father dissected bodies and pumped them with formaldehyde. And and if that wasn't trauma, I, I can't imagine he grew up without some trauma living over <laughs> a mortuary. But anyway, he eventually came to grips with that. And he began to return those things that he took. It was a compulsion. He didn't He didn't want to take them. He had to take them. But he had to do it because he didn't want to see something that was hidden away in his own heart. So the question is, what is hidden away in your heart that's making it so you cannot see this? Uh, such basic, simple teaching of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, Polybius, uh, Plutarch, all of them have said this over and over again throughout history. And and I don't know, you know, I've read some of uh, the life and fate. He doesn't ever really exactly spell this out where I could see it. But it's a big book. I haven't read the whole book or anything. But of all the quotes that I could muster up and find, he doesn't really quite put it in these terms. He sees it. He observes the facts and the information. He sees it on the Nazi side. He sees it on the communist side. But he was also in the communist world. He was also a part of the trauma himself. So I don't know if he ever really quite put it together. And of course, he never saw his book published. He died in 64, didn't get smuggled out of 
um, you know, got smuggled out of uh, Russia on microfilm. <laughs> but it wasn't even published in the United States until the 80s. And then I don't know that millions have read it. <laughs> I guess it's at 900 pages. But Polybius, like I said, was saying this, that they, that they become accustomed to feeding at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others, their tuition paid by the property of others, their parents cared for by the property of others, their Medicare, Medicaid, their public education paid for by the property of others, their ambulance service paid for by the property of others. We do it every day. We're accustomed to it. We think it's okay. It's not okay. It, but you, you can't do anything about it except repent, start thinking differently. And what often is blocking us from see, th- seeing things differently is that we don't want to see everything that's in our own hearts, our own unforgiveness, our own selfishness. And so if you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, if you sit down in those tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded, and start to take care. Start. Just start to take care of the needs and benefits of society. The widows and orphans of society. Then you begin to reverse the process in your own mind. And reverse the process in the world. And this becomes a left foot, right foot thing. That it there's levels and layers to this. It's not, you know, Rome was not built in a day. And the kingdom of heaven is not built in a day. It's not found in a day. It's found by turning around and start thinking differently. And realizing that this covetous way, these covetous practices, all they do is turn us into merchandise, curse our children, make us all surety for debt. And we will go down with the sins of our leaders. Because we have, we are being led astray from the way of Christ. Because these these people who, you know, are accustomed to feeding at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others have instituted this rule of violence. And that's why you see on, on the left side, which is the more extreme, the right, there is no left and right. There's way left, <laughs> quite left, and there's the right. And they're all over there on the left side. <laughs> There might be a few libertarians over there on the right side, but uh, even the libertarians, uh, I don't really see it amongst them. And I don't see the morality and righteousness. It certainly is unrighteous to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. But it's only righteous if you are contributing to the welfare of others through faith, hope, and charity. The absence of unrighteousness is not righteousness. Righteousness is the light. It's the positive actions you do in seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And anyway, it goes on to say, and now uniting their forces, massacre, banish, and plunder. That's what you, they're trying to get the vote together, to massacre, banish, and plunder until they themselves degenerate again into perfect savages. So you see all this anger, yelling, screaming, uh, you know, taking away the rights of others on the left, but it's, they're just the leaders towards this state of perfect savagery that we saw in Nazi Germany 
and communist Russia and communist China. And because the avarice and sloth and apathy of the people did not seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, they were not willing to admit they'd been thinking wrong and willing to turn around and think the other way and go the other way. And so he goes on to say they, of course, find once more a monarch and a king. And, uh, or I, I guess he says a master and a monarch is the way it translates. So what, what are we supposed to be doing it is to be sitting down in this tens, hundreds, and thousands and seeking the righteous way of Christ. And that's what the church was. It was taking care of the needs of society through faith, hope, and charity. And so I added another page on parental rights because this was coming up with a local person who was seeing, uh, what was it? There was like, uh, I can't remember the number, like 80 children have been taken away and their parents' rights terminated and they were actually shipped out of the state. Now, I was fighting that shipping out of the state back 20 years ago. They're just finding out about it now, some of these young people. Great. But they don't understand how we got to that place. And then they shipped them out of state and then they decided that it was wrong. Or actually, they didn't decide somebody back when we were pushing against that. They decided to create a program to bring them back. And that program was allotted so many thousands of dollars for each child to bring him back into the state. Uh, well, they went uh, over a thousand percent over budget. <laughs> and it cost, uh, what was it, uh, I don't know, millions of dollars to bring back these few kids. And the one fellow said, I'd have drove there and taken them back myself <laughs> for free. <laughs> Which is the right track. It's the right spirit to say that. But you need a better strategy than to get upset on Facebook. You need the strategy of Christ, what Christ actually said to begin with. Because if if everybody in Oregon who say they're Christians were actually doing what Christ commanded, those kids would have never been shipped out. And that's the way America operated for many, many years. They did not... Uh, you know, how many orphanages do you think the government built back in 1800s? How many orphanages do you think there were in America around 1850, 1860? There, were, there was only about 50 orphanages in the whole country, which covered quite a, quite an area. And why? And then how long did a kid stay in an orphanage? How long does a kid stay in foster care? The average day for a kid in, uh, well, actually, there were seldom half of the kids who even stayed in an orphanage for a full year. Half of the kids that entered into an orphanage, more than half of them never even stayed one whole year, and they were already placed with another family. And, you know, many of the kids who became, you know, orphans, I mean, that's what orphan, the par- both parents died, and that happened a lot. In the old days, you know, wars, you know, civil war, etc. Lots of orphan people, uh, lots of orphan children. Where'd they go? People took them in. People took care of them. Now, there'll be people telling you horror stories about how some kid was abused when he was taken in as an orphan. But I can show you, all, I mean, Anna Green Gables, orphan. <laughs> she wasn't abused. And basically, that is the name of the game. They weren't abused. They were raised as 
orphans. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, raised as an orphan uh, in a house next door to my dad. Uh, when I was actually up in the North Dakota, there was uh, a, a big family uh, living near us. They were wealthy. They were poor. And they're actually related to marriage. And uh, I was working on wheat farms up there that year. And there was another fairly large family, I think five, six kids in that other family. And both parents were killed in an automobile accident. All the relatives were willing to take some of the kids, but they they thought they could not take all uh, five or six children. Well, the one family who was the poorest of the lot, who had the most children and the smallest house, <laughs> they took them all because they did not want to see the children separate because they valued family. Today, we're killing millions of children in abortion. And and foster care is harming... You know, when did we begin to think this termination of parental rights, which they call TPR, which began decades ago, and it began decades ago because the federal government got a goofy idea that we will pay the states, you know, like, I think it was like $80,000 every time they terminated parental rights. And so that became the fashion, terminate parental rights, and then our agency will get $80,000. And they were funding their agencies with federal tax dollars and terminating parental rights. And I know of many cases where parental rights were were terminated and the parent never did anything wrong. There are a lot more stories like that than you can even imagine. But when did we begin to think that it was the government's role to take children and to provide the care for them? Because that's not what we're... All those orphanages back in the 1800s, they were privately built. Most of them were built by churches. Uh, in almost every case, a major contributor was through churches. Sometimes they were separate associations just built, uh, you know, to establish an orphanage. But the idea of the orphanage was to get the children back with some sort of family environment. And so, you know, like I think of William Pitt, and I put the quote down here on our page on parental rights, as long as we look to government to solve our problems, we will always suffer tyranny. Well, isn't that what we're doing when we say it's the government's role to take children away from parents and to to intervene in bad parenting and and control that? No, that's our role as a community. We're supposed to be a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. That means we're the fourth branch of government. The United States, and I've said this before and I can explain it in detail. We don't want to get off on a tangent. The United States government is an indirect democracy created in the republic for the purposes of maintaining a republican form of government. But a republican form of government, the leaders are titular. They're name only. They don't have the power to take your children away. That's your responsibility as the fourth branch of government. And you can bring action against people when they're abusing. You know, I, I've, I've told the story before. In nearby town, somebody was abusing their daughter. He was a preacher, by the way. An itinerant preacher of some sort. And he was abusing the daughter. He was, he was just like locking her in a little closet when she was bad. And she'd be in there crying for a long time. He was just abusive in that way. Somebody came across the street, walked into his house and opened up the 
little closet uh, that the kid was kept in and took the kid out and took it over to their house. And the guy never came over and confronted him. He left town with the rest of his family, left the daughter behind. He just left town. She was raised up. She just passed away a little bit ago, a very elderly woman. (laughs) And, you know, most people don't know that story. But that's the way we used to handle it in the old days. People took the responsibility of righteousness in their communities. He was the, the gentleman who went across the street and took the kid out of the closet was able to do that because he had the support of his community. We don't have that in the communities anymore. You've gotten away from that because you've got you've you've become accustomed to the idea that that's the government's job. You're the government. It's your job. You have to do it wisely. And I included on our page on parental rights a link to our article on David Crockett because it, you read that article and you see the mindset of Americans wasn't that it was the government's job to take care of the charitable aspect of society to run the ambulances to build the hospitals to to build the schools to to build the orphanages and to help place the children with families it wasn't the government's job it was our job we did that they they would not elect a guy who thought that that's what the role of government was they knew that was not the role of government read that article of uh, that was written about Davy Crockett way back when he was a congressman and he and the people told him we're not going to elect you because you've got this goofy idea that the government is in charge of welfare in our communities it is not it is us once we got accustomed to the idea to use force to provide for the needs of our people we were doomed and destined for tyranny And electing another president to do it right or another congressman or senator to do it right the way you think it ought to be done is not the answer. The way to do make America great again is you people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start taking care of the business of charity and the business of welfare and the business of the widows and orphans and needy of your society. That is your job. If you want a free society, you have to make it your job. And in the process of getting along and staying in those groups of tens, hundreds, and thousands and sacrificing daily to take care of the needy of your society and pure religion, which is pure religion, was taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society. The process of doing that will help you heal the trauma in your own heart so that the Holy Spirit can enter in and show you the whole truth. You can't see the whole truth now because you sit in darkness. Because you sit in the darkness of the idea that you should take care of the needy by force. It's become a popular idea today. And, And people are trying to muster the votes to stop it. But it's growing. And and under the right circumstances, such people will get into power and you will see the Nazi Holocaust and the Russian Holocaust and the Chinese Holocaust in America. And you are not going to protect yourself against that by voting somebody in. I mean, now to be perfectly honest, 
the conservatives supposedly wants less government. That's what Ronald Reagan told us and a lot of other people have told us. They want less government. Ted Cruz just said it the other day. They want less government. So naturally, the people who want less government will not think of running for office. So right now in Oregon, there's all kinds of offices that are going to be vacant and people aren't signing up to run for them because they want less government. But that isn't the answer. We need more personal sacrifice and we need people who understand the principles I've just said. Running for offices in Australia and the United States and Canada and everywhere. If you're in the system, you can run for office. If you're a part of that system, see you're already merchandise in that system. You can run for office for the purposes of reversing the process. For to protect people from those other people, the activists who want more and more benefits at the expense of their neighbor. You'll be voting those down at every turn and using your position as a bully pulpit to say, no, we can do this better ourselves. Not showing the people. They're not hearing. There's no voices in Congress that are hearing this. There's no voices in the Senate that are hearing it. And I can also tell you that the media is not going to back you up either. <laughs> but you can certainly, if God is putting it on your heart, you can certainly go that way. But you know you're going that way, getting elected to office, because you know that government is not your salvation. You also need to be gathering in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and taking care of the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. You need to do both simultaneously and and support that idea of the fourth branch of government getting back to its responsibilities. Because I want to see you get back to your responsibilities because in the struggling to take on those responsibilities, you are going to come face to face with those hidden traumas in you that is causing divorce and causing breakdown in community and breakdown in um, family structure. You're going to come face to face with that and you'll have the opportunity of seeing the whole truth about yourself and heal. You can pursue these things because that's you're supposed to be tending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. So some of you may have to run for political office. But I leave that to you and your conscience. But the idea of saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with the government that I am bound up in, one of the things you could be doing is making sure that righteousness is done in the unrighteous mammon. To go ahead and be friends with the unrighteous mammon, but bring righteousness into it. So anyway, on the page on parental rights, I, I point out that it wasn't until 1909, long after Davy Crockett, that the White House Conference on Children convened by the order of another guy who talked about the bully pulpit, President Theodore Roosevelt, to discuss what should the government's role be in taking care of the needy and homeless of society, the widows and orphans. I'll tell you when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there it's all the same 
and we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. One of the major things that came out of the White House Conference on Children, which uh, was convened by President Theodore Roosevelt in 1909, was a statement that home life is the highest and finest product of civilization. Children should not be deprived of it except for urgent and compelling reasons. So they understood that the child raised in a loving home was absolutely essential for the perpetuation of civilization. They could not be raised in incubator uh, child rearing situations. They had to be raised in the home. And so nothing was done really about this question of how to deal with widows and orphans from a government standpoint back in 1909. Now you have to understand the environment back in 1909. Still in 1909 most children were not educated in public education. Most children went to school at home or they went to school in private schools. And those few public schools that were around, most of the money spent in private schools, or at least a large percentage of the money spent in private schools for services and uh, conducting, you know, like moving kids back and forth to school. and You know, like we have this huge bus system to bus kids to school now and everything. But all that was done privately by private funds and private interaction from the community. You know, they wanted to have a sports program. Everybody in the community turned out to create the baseball field or football field (laughs) that was not funded by taxation. People didn't think that way yet. So nothing much was done about this idea of the government taking over the role of children. There were a few stipends that were created to pay to women who were trying to raise their children in their own home and stuff. But it was really almost nothing. It wasn't until 1935 that the federal government got in on uh, social welfare with the passage of the Social Security Act, which was a social welfare, a socialist welfare program where you pay in and whether you paid in enough or not, you would be getting these benefits back. And if, you know, a, a father died, you'd be taking care of the children. And there was aid to dependent mothers and all these kinds of uh, things. And uh, that began to grow out of that. But it was really very small back then in the amount that was being spent on people because the local community was still picking up most of the slack. The government was now getting their hands into it. And it wouldn't be until the 1960s and you know, I mean, well, actually, the New Deal with FDR began this, but the war on poverty with LBJ really got the ball rolling, and we've done whole programs on the Australian welfare program, how they had so many children being born to single mothers, you know, young teenage pregnancies, that uh, the government said, and this was all taken care of by churches and charity and families, etc., But now all of a sudden the government said, we're going to help you guys out. And that help turned into a crippling effect, just like that cast on the leg. If you leave the cast on, you will lose the leg. You will lose the ability to use the leg. The muscles will atrophy. The bones will shrink up. 
and you will become crippled by the very cast you put on your leg because you didn't need it anymore. You could have stood on your own. Could have strengthened it, but you didn't. You left the cast on. That's what they did. They started allowing the government that was not giving you anything except what it took away from your neighbor by force. It was now, you know, going to be helping out the churches until it eventually took over the role entirely and then pushed the churches out. And the churches were fine with that because they had created this false religion that it was what you think about Christ. It's not what you do. Christ said it was what you do, not what you say. But they started saying, no, it's what you say. It's not what you do. If you say you believe, then that's it. You're saved. But that's not what Christ said. That's the antithesis of what Christ taught. And they have all kinds of excuses and and rationale why we don't have to listen to Christ anymore. And they even tell you that Paul was saying you don't have to listen to Christ anymore. All you have to do is believe. That's not what Paul meant. That's taking Paul clearly out of the context of Paul. But they did that. So anyway, you had these new programs coming out and they just kept growing and growing and growing. And most people didn't realize that to desire those benefits from the government, you're desiring, that's a covetous practice where you're desiring the government of force and violence to take from your neighbor to provide you with more benefits. And you had your appetite for those benefits continued to grow. And you were, became accustomed to receiving them by the rule of force and violence until you have banished liberty in America. It's not going to come back until you take back your responsibilities. I mean, even 100 A.D., which is right about the time of Christ in the early church, you had people like Plutarch writing in his uh, life of uh, Coriolanus, that the men who first ruined the Roman people, not Rome, the Roman people, t'was he who first gave them treats and gratuities. You you find the same thing in Proverbs when it says, "If you are a man <laughs> given to an appetite for benefits, put a knife to your throat," you know, because you you want the benefits of the king. You want these men who exercise authority. You want them. Just put a knife to your th- throat because he serves you deceitful meats. The dainties of the king will bring you back into the bondage. And so, anyway, uh, these, you know, even, even Jefferson said was the, was the government to prescribe to us our medicine and diet. Our bodies would be in such keeping as our souls are now. Because, see, I'm telling you, this desire to obtain these benefits, to take a bite out of your neighbor so that you can have a full belly, to, by using force instead of charity, instead of sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and doing it through charity like Christ commanded, it's altering your very soul, your very mind. The word soul and mind are are often translated from the same exact word. And we need to reevaluate our thinking. And and you're you you're not going to find a political solution. You have to find a heart solution, a soul solution. And that solution is in seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness and that's why we tell you how that is done and accomplished in the early church and how it can be done and accomplished now. But you have to do it. 
And and so you try to get people to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and they they uh, argue uh, with each other, and they complain that his image of Christ is not the same as my image of Christ. You know, it's the same uh, uh, Paul Apollos thing, where they're arguing about, you know, uh, they're straining at gnats, but they're swallowing the camel. You know, it's at that same time in 1909 that they had this meeting. There were other things going on at that time and then shortly after with like the, uh, there were several things, the promotion of the welfare and hygiene of maternity and infancy act. Nice big long <laughs> name <laughs> that came out, but was also known as the Shepherd Towner Act because a guy named Shepherd and a guy named Towner put it together. But it was going to create the Federal Birth Registration Area. And it came out of a nine-year study of the Indian reservations. And so they wanted to register all the children and establish birth certificates, which is not a new thing. Rome, Augustus Caesar, when he rose to power as the first Caesar of Rome, uh, Caesar is an actual office. It was named after Julius Caesar, but because Augustus wasn't Caesar, his name was actually Octavius. Augustus wasn't his name either. Again, I've said this before. Octavius um, was his actual name, but he was given the title of Augustus, which means savior, because he was the savior of Rome. And uh, he was given the title of Caesar uh, because that was literally an office that he was going to hold, a position that he was going to hold. He was sometimes elected president of Rome, but he was almost always for over 20 years there, he was the commander-in-chief of the army and the navy of Rome. But as the president of Rome, he was the chief executive officer of Rome, and one of the things he did was create a law that you had to register the birth of all the children. Why? Because that's how you determine what who was eligible for what benefits. Because he was starting a, a similar program of benefits by the government. Now, of course, at first, he was able to fund those benefits with money he took away from those people he conquered and destroyed. The same as Julius Caesar conquered all these Gauls and sold their wives and children into slavery and even some of the men into slavery. He, he did that and he got paid good money so he could build up bigger armies and go and destroy more people <laughs> and hire Germans to help him go kill us. Like his, his 400, uh, German man, 400 man, oh, it's actually 400 rider German cavalry. And that their, their German cavalry, it must have been quite the sight because one of the things that they would do is they had a rider on the horse, but when the horse charged, this armored horse charged into battle with this rider on the top, there was another guy holding on to its mane, running alongside of it with a sword in his left hand, and sometimes holding on to the mane with his left hand on the other side with a sword in his right hand. <laughs> and that was quite the killing machine when that came. But uh, that's how their cavalry operated, uh, at least that particular group of cavalrymen. So that must have been pretty good-sized horses compared to what was common then. But anyway, back to this idea, they created this federal birth registration area, which was done in Rome. And if you read our article on Call No Man Father, you'll see why Jesus said that. Because what was happening was now you're not looking to your family and your what they called the hearths in uh, Roman system, 
you know, where they had groups of families gathered together and they helped one another out and then they were linked by people like the equestrians and this is how they could muster an army overnight, the same as Abraham had done thousands of years before. But it was community. It was people voluntarily coming together and helping one another. That does something for the soul. In order to do that, you have to overcome trauma. And this practice of forgiving that is required in order to get people with different backgrounds, different things that they were taught as a child, different things that happened to them as a child, to actually start sitting down together and caring about one another, they're going to come face to face with their own impatience, their own unforgiveness. Now, it's pretty easy to forgive somebody you're not super attached to that accidentally stepped on your toes or said something contrary to what you believe. That's not really that difficult. But that practice of doing that will help you set patterns in your minds of forgiveness. It's what I call walking in forgiveness. Where now you you can actually forgive those people that have created trauma in your life that was, you know, maybe you... Maybe you had an old boyfriend or old girlfriend who really betrayed you. Or maybe a uncle who betrayed you. Like I know people who were molested by their uncle. I mean sexually molested. But you could be molested emotionally. You can be, you know, put down and ridiculed and all these other things. And that can traumatize you. It can be. Then, of course, you know, that even though they said that the best place for the children to be uh, raised was in this institution, this great institution of civilization called the family, at least eight or more hours a day, the children are turned over to public schools for their education. And then they come home with homework and they're reading books that you don't know. I just invented a new term called xenophobia. And uh, somebody, I, I said it in a conversation that somebody would say, you mean xenophobia, which is a fear of foreigners. No, I said, no, xenophobia, a fear of Howard Zinn. <laughs> well, Howard Zinn is this historian who's been rewriting history. I didn't even want to call him a historian. And just destroying all the heroes of the past and, you know, ridiculing everything. He, he gives an extremely distorted view of history. Not that... We already weren't getting that in school. In order to, for Zen, Howard Zen to work his magic, we had to already not be teaching history in school. Not real history. Not so that we could see the flaws of people as well as their hero- heroism. And that's what we need to see both. We need to see the whole truth. We need to... We need not only to read the Federalist Papers that promoted the Constitution, we need to read the Anti-Federalist Papers that told us what was wrong with the Constitution. I'm, you know, I always say I was a Constitutionalist until I actually read it. Because then I, I knew enough about law and enough about history to realize, oh, well, there's a problem here. And then I went back and read the Anti-Federalist Papers and I see how they were figuring out some of the problems. Then I went back and read the Bible again (laughs) in the context of law, judgment, mercy, and faith and realized that the Constitution is not a biblical document. Now, I'm not trying to get rid of it. 
I'd like to see people who have such constitutions actually abide by the rules. But I want it, which they're not doing right now. But what I really want you to do is see the rules in nature and uh, the rules of God and how they, in order to know how not to apply those constitutions. Because there are clauses in the constitution that allows you to give up your rights. And you, you do that through the the contract clause. And you create those contracts when you take benefits from men like FDR and LBJ. In order to get those benefits, you need to sign up for those benefits. And your parents can sign you up. And they can deliver you into bondage. And of course, that's what's happened. The whole world has become, everybody, all these citizens of all these different countries are in debt. They're surety for the debt of their nation, their individual countries. And that debt grows. And you can't alter that with a vote. You can alter that by changing your thinking and going back to the ways of righteousness, which is to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And I don't see any way that you can do that without sitting down in these voluntary, free assemblies and start doing it through charity. I mean, that's just, that's it. That's what you have to do. And that's what the church should be helping you do. And we will show you how that was done back then. We do that in free books that we have online. And we will show you how you can do that today. But showing you how to do that doesn't make it so. And so you have to actually apply the basic love and forgiveness that Christ talked about over and over again on a daily basis religiously sitting down in these groups to actually take care of one another. It's that simple. That is the road to back to freedom. The road to Rome is that you elect somebody and then he goes out and makes your neighbor contribute to your welfare. He makes your neighbor pay for your student loan. He makes your neighbor, you know, increase your social security payment. He makes your neighbor and your neighbor's children because all the, they're all operating in debt, so they're all borrowing against the future generation in order to provide you with benefits today, which is contrary to the teachings of the Sabbath and contrary to the teachings of the Torah and contrary to the teachings of, of Abraham and Moses and Jesus Christ and John the Baptist and Paul and Peter and James. But yet you go to churches thinking that, no, it's okay to force my neighbor to contribute, to live by this force and violence and depend upon benefits and an appetite for benefits that are obtained through that force and violence. And you think there will be a different result than a holocaust. There will be a different result than despotism. That there will be a different result than tyranny. There will not be. That you are either on the road to righteousness or on the the downhill slide to unrighteousness. It's your choice. You have to make that choice. And it's, you know, I don't know if there, we have a theme song. <laughs> I don't know if we have, you know, a whole hymnal of songs you can sing on this. You make up your own songs. But that's the direction that you have to go. If you need to be stimulated emotionally in order to go this way, well, 
then, you know, you're going to have to find that on your own because all I'm doing is preaching the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of the way. And that way is the way of charity. You cannot be free people while taking away the rights of other people, whether they be in Gaul or if they be in Corinth or if they be in Poughkeepsie or Alabama. You cannot be taken. And you have to care about your neighbor's rights, parental rights, children's rights. Can you imagine, you know, like nearby town, 30,000, I don't know, they're probably up to around 50,000 now. And I say nearby, 100 miles away. You have to go 100 miles to get to a town of that size from where I live. But if you were in that and you had a 1,000 people in a network of tens, hundreds, and thousands, and somebody unjustly came against one of those people, and those 1,000, you know, heads of households, let's say that, 1,000 heads of households, and somebody in their family was in trouble and you you told your minister and he told the ministers he was in a congregation with and then when you had to go down to court 500 people showed up or maybe a thousand people show up because you know a thousand heads of family may represent you know several thousand people they would know not to mess with you anymore <laughs> and all they have to do is show up they wouldn't be exporting your children out of town. If something happened to you, if you got sick, if you got injured, if you were in a coma in the hospital, that same thousand people would come to the aid of your child until you got better. If your business was going bankrupt, they would come there to help you out with advice, maybe with funds, Maybe with assistance, you know, like in the big fat Greek wedding when they needed help, some cousin showed up to help them. They got paid, but they were constantly helping one another, learning how to work in this business or that business. They had a variety of different opinions in life, but bottom line, family was family. Well, if you're going to be a part of the family of God, because you can't just love those in your family. You have to love those in the next family, in the next congregation, and the next group of congregations as much as you love your own. That's a different way of thinking. Because the, today, you know, somebody could be being raped in the streets or murdered in the streets and people pull their shades, close their windows. Because they don't want to get involved. Well, when they come for you, people will close their shades close their doors and windows to you as well. And so when that final day comes, when we see this mayhem and holocaust in the streets, people will begin to wake up then. But it is much wiser to wake up now when we really have somewhat of an orderly society. And that's what, and we need to do it out of love because we see, let God write this. You don't see, I don't care who you are, you don't see the whole picture now. You just can't see it now. But if you begin to walk this road, the farther down this road you go, the farther down the road you'll see. And you'll know what's coming. You'll know what to do. You'll know how to prepare. You'll know how to handle 
whatever comes your way in the moment, it comes your way. Because you will be altered. You will be tapping into a source of information. And then when somebody tells you a lie, no matter what it's about, you will know that it's a lie. That's what amazes me, that people, we see in the news people lying. And so many people can't see it. You say, well, how come these people can't see this? Well, I just told you. Because they don't see the lie that they have accepted in their own heart that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority. It's not okay. It alters you. It changes your soul. It changes your mind. And going the other way will change your mind the other way. So that's where you need to go. And until you do, about all I can say is peace upon your house. And may God be with you. So join the network. Go to preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org and join the network. And I'll see you there. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.